0: You're all alive and well, and it's springtime, time to uh, dust off the golf clubs and get the bikes out of the attic and get out there and enjoy some of this incredible weather that we have here in Minnesota in the spring. So let's pray as we get going. Father, I thank you that you are the almighty God that never changes, that is always constant and solid as a rock. But Father, I thank you too that you are the God of unlimited creativity and that you are new to us and fresh to us. Fresh as a spring here in Minnesota, God. And I pray that you would be new to our hearts, to our minds, to our souls this morning as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we celebrated the beautiful, wonderful, earth shattering incredible resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's give it up. Woo! We we call that day Easter. I love the term Resurrection Day. It's a day when Christ, we celebrate the fact that Christ has conquered death. And his resurrection, really, from the dead. Christ died for our sins. That happened on the cross. But his resurrection sealed the deal. His resurrection was the declaration that death no longer is our greatest enemy. You know, I was thinking of that this week. Uh, My dear mother came to church for Easter, praise the Lord. That was a major event, the first time out of her house, really since Christmas. And as I'm talking to mom, she says to me this week, I don't think I have long on this earth. I think I'm going home. Okay? And you'd think, oh, we must be so sad around the Noel home. But we're not. Our love for her is great. But you know what? Death comes to all. And there is a beauty in those who have loved and served Jesus as they begin to get ready for that trip into heaven. And she's saying, I'm looking over my pictures and all my friends are gone. They're all waiting for me on the other side. I can't. She's excited about being with dad. Because, you see, death has lost its victory. Will there be tears? Will there be sadness? Sure. But will there be joy and rejoicing? Absolutely. Because death no longer is the ultimate enemy because Christ has conquered Death Praise the Lord. I can preach this this morning. I can preach this this morning. I can't preach that at her funeral. I won't be able <laughs> Gary's going to preach the funeral when uh, my mom passes. I said, "Don't put that on me, mama. <laughs> Death is no longer the ultimate enemy. When Christ rose from the dead, he conquered and he confirmed. The resurrection confirmed that Jesus really was God in the flesh. The resurrection confirmed that what Jesus had been teaching, all of these teachings about the kingdom, are truth. They're not just opinions. They're not just good teachings. They are truth. And in this world of relativism, of great confusion for us and for our kids, it says, Anything goes, whatever you believe is true. That's confusing. The word of God stands true because of the resurrection of Christ, that this is truth. You can bet your life on it. And it also confirmed that the plan of forgiveness is available to us today, that we can be reconciled. Bobby talked about reconciliation. We can be reconciled to God And that our salvation and our eternity is secure. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was last week. Now here we are the Sunday after. And as I was looking through the scriptures, I found it fascinating that Jesus didn't just raise from the dead, greet his disciples and he was gone. Day one. But it's, the scriptures tell us that Jesus hung around for 40 days. thought about that. I thought, why? Well, I mean, he'd already died for our sins. He'd been resurrected to prove that he, what he said was true. Why did he hang around for 40 days? Well, you know, the, the main purpose, I believe, that Jesus stayed was to prove that he had risen from the dead. He knew there'd be a lot of doubt, and he presented himself to many people, first to Mary, then to a couple different groupings of his disciples. It says at one point to over 500 people, he showed himself. He was saying, look, I have risen from the dead. It's the real deal. That's reason number one. But why 40 days? It's interesting. Um, The Bible seems to use the number 40 to emphasize a spiritual truth. You see the number 40 throughout many times. I'm not a guy of numerology. I think we can overdo it. But I think the Bible does use this number 40 to say, hey, pay attention. Something big is going on here. Just think of some of the examples. You have in the Old Testament with the flood, it rained 40 days and 40 nights. When Moses killed the Egyptian, he fled to Midian. And he was there for 40 years in the desert. Moses went to Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. The Israelite spies went to Canaan for 40 days. The Israelites wandered around the desert for 40 years. And in the New Testament, Jesus was tempted in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus or the scriptures use this number for you to say something is going on here in the spiritual world. Open your eyes, pay attention, don't miss this. And now there were 40 days between Jesus's resurrection and his ascension. And I believe the Lord is saying, pay attention, take a look. This is the Messiah. This is the Chosen One. This is the Redeemer of the world. And He has conquered death. And as Jesus spent these 40 days, and you're supposed to pay particular attention to these days, He went around giving, as it were, parting gifts. Things that He said, all right, you've heard a lot, but here's really important themes that you should not miss because His goal was to not just redeem the world, but to establish his church here in the world for all ages, including City Hill Church here in Eden Prairie. He wanted to leave gifts to us as his church. And one of those kingdom principles that Jesus wanted to emphasize and bring home, and it's my message for this morning, is grace. Say that with me. Grace. When they ask you at lunch, what did the pastor talk about today? You can say, Grace, talked about grace. It was an incredibly important kingdom principle that Jesus wanted to leave to you and to me. See, God is a God of grace. God's default, the default of Christ to you and to me is grace. Two stories to illustrate that this morning. prior to his crucif- crucifixion crucifixion that's the word <laughs> prior to his crucifixion jesus had been betrayed by judas i've sometimes wondered what would have happened had judas not taken his life but come repenting back to christ Would Christ's grace and mercy have been enough for Judas? Absolutely so. But not only being betrayed, another disciple named Peter, and we all kind of identify with this guy, right? Peter must have been quite a guy to hang out with. Peter denied the Lord. It's the same disciple that had just the day earlier, I'm sure looking Christ in the eye, maybe holding his hand, he would have said, even if I have to die with you, I, I will never deny you. We have a little clip just to show that particular scene. So that happened the day prior to crucifixion. Peter denies the Lord, and Christ goes on to be crucified and dies, buried. And then he rises from the dead. I was just thinking about Peter. What must have been going on inside of this man? The joy that his savior, his master, the great teacher, the savior of the world had been risen. He, He had risen from the dead. Do you imagine he felt joy? Tremendous joy. Tremendous excitement. But what a conflict of emotion he must have had at the same time. I mean, how do you go about starting that conversation with Christ after he rose from the dead? You know, about that thing that happened back there, Jesus? You know, I I, would... Try to find the words to justify or explain why you denied the Lord. And so when Jesus appeared to the women, or to Mary initially, when he appeared, even to the disciples, it was a small group setting. But now there was a face-to-face that was happening between Jesus and Peter. And imagine Peter waited for that, or had tremendous trepidation, how would Christ respond to him after he had turned his back? In the time, you know, we say we know who who our friends are in the time of real crises. Well, in Jesus' greatest time of need, Peter failed. And so, in this 40 days, Jesus was moving about appearing here. He was different. He was going through doors, closed doors, and appearing here, and he was at a different time of life. Disciples didn't really know what to do, so Peter is a leader. Now, he didn't always lead in good directions, but he was always leading. And Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the other disciples said, all right, we're with you, Peter. So they jump into a boat and they go fishing. They go backwards. They go back to the life they had before. How many of you know that going backwards doesn't work very well? We try going backwards sometimes. It's a life we know, but it's just not the same. They might have loved fishing before, but I don't think they loved it now. And so they're out fishing. And we come to John chapter 21, verse 4. I'll work this through verse by verse this morning. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that he was Jesus. Jesus said to them, "Children, do you have any fish?" They answered him, "No." Time out. Anybody been fishing? Minnesota fishermen, how much of you? How much do you hate it when you're fishing and you're striking out? You've been fishing all day, and the other boat pulls up, and you got nothing. They go, "Catch anything? No. Any luck?" And you're like. And so you, don't, you never say no. You say, well, we've had a couple strikes. You know, a big one just got away. We had it right up to the boat, man. It was there, you know, I, something. You try, and, and then the worst off is if they pull up their stringer. You know, I mean, it, it, fishermen. And so they say, Jesus says to them, children, do you have any fish? They say no. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. It's getting worse. Now this guy, I mean, these are professional fishermen. And this guy on the shore somehow thinks that changing the net to the other side of the boat is going to make a difference. How many of you know that kind of sounds like a dumb idea? you know, it's all, And there's always somebody that knows a better lure, a better way to catch fish. They got some better idea of why you're failing. And Jesus, this guy, some guy on the shore says cast it out on the other side of the boat. I can just kind of hear these guys going, hey, thanks, buddy. Great idea. But their way is not working, so they try it. Verse 3 or verse 6, end of 6. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. All of a sudden, their their nets are just full. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. Now, How do you think he knew it was the Lord right then? Not that he could see him any better, but something in John, the disciple, they called him the disciple that Jesus loved. They're, they're striking out all night and they put the nets in and they just pack out with fish. Something strange is going on. He goes, I know that feeling. I've been with that guy where things that you don't expect happen regularly. This is the guy that commands the winds and the waves. This is the guy that multiplies bread and fish. He tells us to throw our nets on the other side, and they fill up. Hey, that's the Lord over there. And Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. He threw himself into the sea. I ask you the question, which side of the boat did he throw himself into the sea on? It doesn't say. It's really speculation at this point. Did he throw himself into the sea so he could swim to get to Jesus first? That's possible. Or did he throw himself off the back side of the boat? Say, this is Jesus. This is the man, the master that I betrayed. We don't really know. But he left the fish. He left the catch. He threw himself into the sea. When they got, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it. Notice Jesus didn't need their catch to have fish. He said to them, bring me some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. I'll say that one more time. Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So here's that meeting between Jesus and Peter. It's a quiet time down by the lake. And Peter finally encounters the risen Lord on a personal face-to-face level. And Jesus says to him, come. Come and have breakfast with me. I just want to ask you, How would you have encountered Peter had you been the Lord? What would you have done to the disciple who denied you? How would you have responded? Maybe you would have given Peter the stare. You know the stare? Kind of like, there's that guy. You you, you want to let him know, I know. Or maybe it would have been just that silent treatment. You just go silent. Peter's over there and you're just, your body says it all. you just, the shoulders are up, the head's turned away. It's like, Peter, you need to know how much that hurt. Or maybe you would have been, this is probably what I would have done. I would have said, look, Peter, uh, you and I got a conversation we got to have. We got to talk. You've got to know what this did to me. But Jesus did not do any of those. Jesus fed Peter breakfast. But what a beautiful illustration of grace. Peter probably was pretty nervous and Jesus said, Come on, let's go, let's go get something to eat. I made you breakfast this morning. Can you imagine what that would have ministered to Peter, saying, I still have a place at the table. He still loves me. After I've done the worst, Jesus still knows my name. He has a place for me. prepares breakfast for me. See, grace is God's blessing us despite the fact that we don't deserve it. And Jesus wants to bless you and me today, although we don't deserve it. And how many times do we build walls and excuses and reasons of why we can't be close to the Lord or receive from him or worship him because you know what I've done? You know what I've thought? Do you know that? And we have these lists. We have these lines that we fill in because of this sin or this doubt, or this thing in us, and we block God because we say, really what we're saying is, my sin is greater than your redemption. I want to tell you that. It's really what we're saying. When we say, God can't love me because... You can fill in your own blank. Because I've messed it up. I've crossed that line. I mean, I'm going to heaven. I know he loves me, but i got to keep a distance because... I've done something. And I just want to say this morning the grace of God is greater for you. That's the truth. What you do with it really is up to you. I'm uh, planting some grass seed in spots in our lawn that look kind of bad from the winter. And I'm putting the seed out there. I did some of that yesterday while the ladies were enjoying their conference. I like point three. It said the most important point here is keep it watered. This seed will not grow if you don't water it twice a day. And I was also preparing the sermon and I thought, isn't that true of the word of God? The seeds, the truth of the word of God, that God's grace is greater than your sin. The question is that seeds planted, but will you water it? Will you let that drop into your soul and grow beautiful grass, grow beautiful life in your soul, or will you ignore it, let it sit, let it die? God's grace is greater, and the default of Jesus was to show grace to Peter. See, the disciples had seen this before. Story two, they'd seen Jesus respond this way. This was consistent to who Christ was. In John 8, prior to Christ's death, during his years of ministry, I want to read from John 8, starting with verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, wrote with his finger in the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they would heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. See, Jesus' default was grace. And this was problematic for the Jewish leaders. That was not their default. See, they were rule followers. They were law-abiding citizens. They were righteous. And folks, these are good things. It's good to obey the law it's good to follow rules. These aren't evil things that they were doing. They were attempting to serve God by being obedient. And Jesus seemed to be a rule breaker. His life was messy. He did things like he, he had the audacity to heal somebody on the Sabbath. Why couldn't he wait till midweek? I think he waited till the Sabbath to heal. Just to make them squirm. His disciples picked corn and ate it on the Sabbath, and he hung out with the riffraff. His friends were not the pretty people. He hung out with people whose lives were not the religious leaders. They were those other people, those people. He hung out with them. Because his default was grace. And I think Jesus wanted to show that he loved people more than he loved the rules. I'll say that again. Jesus loved people more than he loved the rules. And that made the Jewish leaders very uncomfortable. It just made them, they liked rules. Rules bring us security. They bring us boxes that we can fit things into. We like having handles in life. And Jesus loved people more than he loved the rules. And so these religious leaders, they tried to figure out how do we take this guy down? The people love him. So they made a plan. Better said, they made a plot to take him down. They may have even laid the trap. Who knows how they found this woman in the act of adultery? But they brought her to Jesus, and now they had Jesus trapped. They gave him two options, and he was between a rock and a hard place. Either answer would be good for them because they could trap him in this problem. If Jesus says, let her go, then they have proof that he's a rule breaker and they can show that he is not a man of God. He is not a godly man because the law said she needed to be stoned. The law of Moses said she must die. If Jesus says, stone her, they went again because they could show that Jesus lacked compassion, that he was harsh and cruel to stone this woman to death. And so they had him, or so they thought. So the Pharisees throw this sinful, naked woman at Jesus' feet, and they demanded an answer. He pauses, and they demand, they keep asking, what's your answer, teacher?" And Jesus responded in a way that they had not anticipated. You can just kind of see these guys in the back room. We got him. If he says this, we win. If he says this, we win. Those are the two answers. Okay, great plan here. I think sometimes in our life we look at the options that we have ahead of us and we say A is bad and B is bad. Life is bad. There's no other answer. But Jesus is so amazing. He always comes up with some other answer. Some other way. And in our life, sometimes we limit ourselves so much to it's this. And if we hit a wall, we're done. Folks, God has creative answers for us that we've never even thought of. So the woman is at his feet. And Jesus responded with grace. Once again, his default for this woman was grace. And he says he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Just try to imagine these guys probably had rocks. They're going to kill her with you just kind of hear the older ones. You could hear those rocks. Dropping in the dirt. One by one, one by one, they dropped the rocks. Must have been pretty quiet besides these rocks dropping. And imagine this woman. Imagine this whole experience through the woman's eyes. We assume her to be Jewish. She would have known the rules. Yet somewhere in her life, she'd taken a wrong turn. Who knows what her family upbringing was? We don't really know anything about her. Who knows what had led her into a life of sin? Instead of saving her body and her sexual intimacy for a husband, she had stepped outside of God's command and had given herself to a man that was not her husband, a man to whom she was not married, which is the definition of adultery. And the Bible clearly condemns adultery, fornication, any sexual intimacy outside of holy marriage. Let it just be stated that the Bible is very clear that sex is not dirty, that sex is not bad. To the contrary, the scriptures celebrate sex and the incredible union between a man and a woman inside the bounds of matrimony. There's high walls that God puts and says, this is an image of God and his church, the bride. But there's high walls. This is an exclusive relationship. And she had stepped outside of those walls. And you know, we don't know why. Was she a prostitute that was in this for financial gain? Was she looking for love? Was she Pursuing physical pleasure. We don't know the story behind this woman. All we really know is she was caught in the act. And now her sin was going to cost her her life. There must have been a lot of horrible, painful emotions flowing around inside of this woman. One of those may have been injustice. I mean, where's the guy? There were two in bed. Where's the guy? How come he wasn't brought into this circle along with the woman? He seems to be let free. And I'm sure part of her was saying this was a trap and this isn't fair. And may I just say that life is rarely fair. If We look for fairness in this life, we don't get very far. A lot of times the fairness swings towards our direction if we look at the fairness and the economy of the world and the, the things that we enjoy here in this land, it's not fair. And then there's other things that are unfair. And we, those things shout inside of us. And she must have been shouting, this is so unjust. She was brought naked, we imagine, to the public square. She no doubt felt the pain of public shaming, the scorn the eyes of the young man upon her, the disdain of the religious, lead, the religious women in the crowd, the sounds they would have made, the looks they would have put her way. She must have been in a miserable situation. But beyond that, she also realized that this was going to end her life, that these stones were going to be thrown at her until she died. Imagine the fear, the shame, the pain. This would be the end of her life that day. Her worst nightmare was about to happen or she was in the middle of it. And, and she also knew the law. And she would have said, you know, beyond all this, this is the law. I knew it. I stepped into it and now I'm going to pay for it. But for some reason, they brought her to this man named Jesus. And Jesus was not like the other men. He didn't look lustfully at her. He wasn't even angry. He didn't seem to be condemning her. Because his default was grace. Now some of us would call grace weakness. I mean, there is a law. If everybody just does whatever they want, World's going to go crazy, right? Law and order. I like order. I think laws are good. And grace sometimes seems to pound against that and grace can look weak. But let me ask you a question. How easy is it for you to show grace? You. In life, when things hurt you, how easy is it? Is it weak to show grace? Is it easy to forgive? Is it easy to show grace rather than judgment? I don't think so. I think it takes courage and strength to show grace when it seems unfair, when you want justice. Grace takes strength lay down your rights is not something that comes naturally for us. It takes the Spirit of God in us to show grace. And there are also those who would abuse grace. People who say things like, when I sin, I know God forgives me. It's no big deal. God chose grace, so it doesn't really matter what I do. Because we might say the more I sin, the more grace there is. So hey, I can get create more grace by doing more sin. I mean, Paul talked about that in Romans 6 1. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? So if we sin more, there's more grace, good thing, right? Paul says, By no means. Or another translation says, God forbid. Because when we sin with that kind of attitude, we are trampling under feet the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're taking his sacrifice as something that is no big deal. What grace says is that greater than our sin, God has grace for you and for me. Unless we think that Jesus didn't care about sin or is soft on sin, after he shows grace to her, he turns and he says, Now go and sin no more. He called it sin. You know, today we don't like to talk about sin, right? I mean, when have you read an article on sin in the newspaper? We talk about things like your opinion, your perspective, your lifestyle, what you choose to do. But we don't like to talk about sin. Sin is missing the mark, missing God's mark. The scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Raise your hand if you're in all. All. And if you don't see the sin in your life, get some new glasses. I mean, we have all fallen short in thought, in word, and in deed. And it's good for us to remember that before we ever put on our self-righteous hats. To realize that we are all sinners that demand or that deserve judgment. But by the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, we've been forgiven. We've been washed clean. Jesus says, go and sin no more. Not an oops, not a mistake. You know, he didn't ask her, was the sex consensual? Did you love him? Those weren't the questions. Jesus called it sin. And Jesus showed her, showed her grace, amazing grace. Grace that they were not expecting, the Pharisees. And it was just like the grace that Jesus showed to Peter there at their lakeside breakfast. The grace of God. Grace that was greater than any sin. Grace that is enough for you or for me. So I want to close this morning. I want you to put your notes away, please. Like those who take notes, that's good. But I'd like us just to open our hands before the Lord. And two things I want to bring home this morning. Will you receive the grace of the Lord for your life? Is the grace of God great enough for you? Now I would imagine that most of us have opened our heart to Christ as our Savior. Praise the Lord. If not, today's a great day to open your heart to Jesus. That'd be a wonderful way to receive his grace and forgiveness. But for the other things in your life that as you grow, as you're on your journey of following Christ and you fall short. I hate to even speak of the ways that we can fall short because we're pretty good at figuring those out, right? We know those. And my prayer today coming in was that Jesus would shine a light of truth into our souls that would show the lies of Satan. That his light of grace would be so great that you would say, I've been believing a lie. That my sin is greater than. That because I should know better, because I've been walking with Christ. Whatever you fill that out, that that has gone too far beyond what Christ can forgive. And I would say to you today that the grace of God is greater than all of your sins, all of my sins. There's an old chorus that I was just thinking of. and I'm just going to, if you know it, sing with me, but it's a song. I know it's at least... A, 88 years old because my mother-in-law said she used to play that on her violin when she was three years old she played a violin at three years old it's an old chorus that um got a d it just goes if you know it sing with me grace grace god's grace grace that will pardon and cleanse within Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all. Let's sing it one more time. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God. grace. Grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. Let that chorus ring round and round in your heart this week. When the condemnation, scripture says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, let that chorus drop in. But the second thing, I want to drive home today, is what's your default when others hurt you? Or when things are off or when people fall short, what is your default? Is it grace or is it judgment? And I would challenge you, let your default be that which was the default of Jesus. Let that default be grace. Kind of like that button on the computer that says, reset to factory settings. Never know if to push that button or not. This is a safe one to push. The factory setting of grace. Not grace that is sloppy on sin, but grace that is greater than sin. Grace that is great enough to extend to a family member to a friend, to a neighbor. May that be our default setting as followers, as imitators of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, I thank you for your grace that is great enough for me. I thank you, Lord, for the grace that is great enough to save our souls, to redeem us from hell to forgive our sins, to bring us freedom, God. And Father, may we be those who reflect your life, your character, your grace, to everyone we meet, Lord. May they see the character of God in us as we take the tough road of showing grace, Lord Jesus. We thank you so much for the depth of your love, your forgiveness, and your unmerited grace towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. May your default be grace in Jesus' name. It's good to be together today. If you're our guest, I'd love to meet you out at the Welcome Center. If you're in need of the grace of God or someone to pray with you...